I want to begin just with a, uh, a thank you and also an encouragement. And first of all, thank you, uh, Penn Valley, for praying this week as, as we heard last week and as you were told about two more transitions that are happening in, in our church life. And uh, with, with Ryan seeking different ministry and me shifting in my ministry, and I just wanted to say thank you, first of all, for your prayers, but you have to keep praying for our church. Just continue to pray as God is, is leading. Pray for Adam and his new role uh, here. Uh, pray for the elders as there's more still to sort out. Um, and as we're seeking a new lead pastor, just continue to prayer's it, right? Prayer's where we have to go. We need to pray. Pray um, again for Ryan as he's seeking a different role in Christian ministry. And I do ask you to pray for Janice and myself. Um, Glenn mentioned last week, Glenn, the, the, the chairman of the elder board, mentioned last week about me possibly turning 60. Glenn, I did turn 60. I already turned 60, and that was that last December. And in part, partly because of that, and partly because the Lord has been moving in my heart, I started thinking about my ministry of the 60s, this next decade, and what is it that God would want me to be doing? And I began thinking in terms just of legacy, and maybe that happens when you get older, um, but thinking in terms of legacy, and it, it became clear in the late spring and early summer that the Lord was asking me to, to really kind of move from pulpit ministry to more personal ministry. And so I do have seven young men right now that I'm doing life coaching and discipleship with, and um, that's, that's the area that I'm going to be moving into. And Janice and I have also been praying just about ministry to the least of these. We've done a lot of ministry, Janice and I, since we met each other. Um, I was uh, 19 and she was 18. And we've done a lot of ministry, a lot of different kinds of ministry. Youth ministry here at Penn Valley. We've done go teams. We've been um, different countries. And uh, we planted a church. We've done a lot of different ministries. And one of the things that we've realized is in all of those decades of ministry, we've done very little for the least of these. And you know, that's a very convicting passage, and it has been for us this last year, when people uh, approached Jesus and said, you know, Lord, you know, um, why can't we come in into the kingdom? And he said, well, you haven't done anything for the least of these. And I know salvation isn't based on that, but it's still a very, very heavy message that Jesus gave. And others came and said, Lord, when did we feed you? When did we clothe you? And he said, whenever you do it for the least of these, you've done it for me. And so Janice and I want to get more involved in that type of ministry, and that does take a lot of time. Um, I shared with our discovery group this Wednesday that there's a ministry, an ongoing ministry that's going on in McPherson Park in Philadelphia that deals with the homeless and the addicts. As they're being pushed farther and farther out of Kensington, they end up kind of congregating around this park. And we want to be more involved in that kind of ministry, and that takes a lot of time. So we would, we would cover your prayers as we are making a shift from pulpit ministry to more personal ministry, and we really would appreciate as well that you just continue to pray for the church. Pray for our church here at Penn Valley, and that's what we're going to do to start. We're going to pray together right now, so let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you so much for your love, your lavish love that caused you to send your son to not only save us, but to save us into a community to save us into a church. What a mysterious and magnificent plan you've had to do that. And Lord, we know that 
We know that you are the head of the church. You tell us that in, in your word. You tell us the gates of hell cannot stand against the church and its faith in you. And that image, Lord, has just become so real in these last few weeks that as strong and as mighty as the power of our adversary is, his gates crumble before your church. We need to be reminded of that. And so, Lord, I thank you for people like Pastor Goodhart and Pastor Griffith and Pastor Tweedale and Pastor Womble and Pastor Tim and Pastor Larry and Pastor Andrew and the team that serve with them. We thank you for all of these people who have led and served in this congregation from the very beginning. And we know, Lord, that you have great plans for this community of faith that you have formed. And so we ask that you would lead and you would empower Adam in his new role here for the next nine months. You would just empower him, empower his preaching. We ask that you would uh, humble the elders as they seek you and as they pray and as they plan. Lord, we also pray uh, for Ryan as he's seeking that, that different role in Christian ministry and, and ask that you would lead and support him. And for Janice and myself, Lord, we have depended on you for decades and we depend on you now as we enter this shift from, from pulpit-type ministry to more personalized ministry, we ask, Lord, that you would lead us uh, in, in that. And we thank you, Jesus, for being faithful. As we sang, no matter what state our heart is in, you are faithful. You are faithful to us personally, and you're faithful to this church. And we thank you for it. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were allowed only one letter to write to your family and your friends to tell them the most important thing that you could about life, um, what would you say? What would you say? If you were allowed one sheet of paper, what would you say to them? Give you a chance to think. Would you mention something about family? Would you mention something about God or maybe life-changing moments. Well, there was a person by the name of Holly Butcher who was 26 years young when she lost her life's battle with cancer. And just a day before her death, she did pen a letter, her last letter, uh, for her followers on Facebook. And this is Holly. She said things like this. Be grateful for each day that you don't have pain. And even the days where you are unwell with the flu, a sore back, or a sprained ankle, accept it, but be thankful it isn't life-threatening and that it'll go away. Whine less, people. <laughs> she said, and help each other more. Give, give, give. It's true that you gain more happiness doing things for others than doing them for yourself, and I wish I did this more. Buy your friend something kind instead of another dress for yourself or another beauty product or jewelry for that next wedding. Remember, number one, no one cares if you wear the same thing twice. <laughs> number two, it feels good to take them out for a meal or better yet, cook them a meal. Try just enjoying and being in moments, being in moments rather than capturing them through the screen of your phone. Life isn't meant to be lived through a screen, nor is it about getting the perfect photo. 
Get up early sometimes, I would argue with that. But get up early sometimes and listen to the birds while you watch the beautiful colors the sun makes as it rises. Listen to music. Really listen, because music is therapy. Cuddle your dog. I know I'll miss that. Put your phone down and talk to your friends in person and ask how are they doing and listen. Eat the cake with zero guilt. <laughs> Don't feel pressured to do what other people might think is a fulfilling life. You might want a mediocre life and that's okay. Tell your loved ones you love them every time you get the chance and love them with everything you have. She said a number of other things, but those are just some excerpts of her very last letter. What would you say? Now, you have to fit it all on one page. Would you talk about God? Would you talk about your family? Would you talk about life-changing moments and what they meant to you? What would you write? Well, the Apostle John wrote a letter like this. We call it First John because... He happened to follow it up with two very, very short notes, which we call 2nd and 3rd John, but 1st John was that letter. And in both of the follow-up letters of 2nd John and 3rd John, he wrote, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. So he had this desire to be with them, but he couldn't. For some reason, he couldn't. And twice in his two follow-up notes, which weren't more than a postcard size, but they're in our Bible, he said, I have much more to write to you, but I have to kind of shorten it up. I've got so much to say, but soon we'll be face-to-face, -face, Lord willing. But until then, I want to emphasize a few things, and one thing in particular above everything else. What does John emphasize above everything else in this letter we call 1 John? He emphasizes love. He emphasizes love. In this letter where he could have said a whole lot of things, he said over and over and over again, God loves you and love each other because God loves you. The lavish, unconditional love of God that is so great and that is so precious that it costs the father the death of his son to get it to you, to get it in you. That's how precious this love is. God's love and its inevitable effect on people who really experience it, who really, really know it, and that is loving each other. Many of you know the Gospel John 3.16, right? The Gospel of John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, they shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. But have you looked at 1 John, the letter of John, 1 John 3.16? Gospel John 3.16 is what you see in the end zones, right? Yellow signs. But 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, for our church family. This is how we know what love is. The picture of Jesus laying down his life. 
And that's the picture for us. And that's what John was emphasizing over and over again in his letter. God's love for us and our love for each other. He says it over, he cycles through this in every chapter. He's highly theological, John is, but he says the mark of, of, of the Christian life is not our theology, it's our love for one another. His gospel is the most theological out of, the fourth, out of four gospels. It certainly is. And he does mention theology in 1 John, but his emphasis is on how it works out in life, our love for one another. John had great faith. Remember when they got to the tomb, when he and Peter got to the tomb, Peter ran inside and he, he grabbed the grave clothes and John was, was waiting outside. And it didn't say Peter believed. It said, John believed. He was the first to believe at the empty tomb. And while he believed, he didn't say that our experiences with God, which are miraculous, is the most important thing in our lives. He said it was love. John was very courageous, but courage was not what he emphasized in 1 John. You know, he and Peter were the first disciples to be jailed for their courage. But in 1 John, he doesn't emphasize courage. He emphasizes over and over again, love. Because it wasn't theology, it wasn't faith, it's not courage that John points to as the mark of the Christian. All three of those things are important, theology, faith, and courage. But he points to love as the mark of the believer. As vital as all of them are, it wasn't what John emphasized as the mark of the believer. It is a supernatural unconditional, God-like, Jesus-like love that distinguishes you and I as disciples of Christ from everybody else. Remember, this was a disciple who saw incredible things. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus light up like a beacon on the Mount of Transfiguration. He watched Jesus cast out demons. He watched him heal the lame. He watched him even raise their dead friend, Lazarus, walking out of the tomb with his grave clothes still on. John saw incredible, miraculous things. But the real miracle that he points to as the mark of the believer is a supernatural love in regular old, flawed people like ourselves. That's the mark. The disciple John took Jesus at his word when he said, when Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so what I want to do is I want to read from 1 John chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you'll open up to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read a bunch of scripture here in the chapter 3. And since he cycles the message in chapter 4, we're going to look at chapter 4 as well, at this great love that the Father has lavished on us. So let's go to 1 John chapter 3. And uh, we'll just take a peek at that first verse, which says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God like we sang. And that is what we are. Let's go down to verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. That's a flashback to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus spoke about hate. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. There it is again. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Dear friends, let us love one another. And now in chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Because he cycles again into this message. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the third time he said, this is love. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I'm just going to pause for a second there. Why would he say no one has ever seen God and then talk about loving one another? Because here's why. Because for people that don't know God to see him, they have to see love in us. It's an evangelistic kind of love. If they see a love that is supernatural in regular people that they know, they're, they're seeing God in us. See, see, see how that works? So we can't separate love for each other from evangelism. We can't separate love for each other from our love for God. It's all one package. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Verse 13. The reason I keep turning around is, oh, there it is. It's on the screen in front of me now. Good. I still can't read it, but that's okay. Verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. What an awesome verse. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. 
And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In other words, if we know that we are in the love of God, we know that we will not be punished so we can have confidence on the day of judgment and we can have confidence in our day right now. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Here he says it again. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. See, love is what John emphasizes in this letter over and over again. It is the mark of the believer. Love for God is proven through our love for each other and how we sacrifice for one another. I can't say, John says, I can't say I love God. God and I, we're great. I just don't like the church. All right? We can't say I had a great devotional time this morning, a great quiet time, and hold a grudge against somebody at church. Doesn't work. John says, don't tell me you love God if you're not loving your brothers and sisters. We see three things in, in, this, in the chapter three and then when he cycles back in chapter four that I wanna just emphasize here that, that, are, that are crazy. They're crazy when you think about it. And the first one is this, love for each other is evidence that we've passed from death to life. How, that's crazy. How is that evidence that we've passed from death to life? When we go from death to life, we can go to Romans chapter 5, we can go to Romans chapter 8, and we can really get into a, a good theological uh, discussion on this, and, and we can kind of outline it, and we can know it, but it says here in verse 14 of chapter 3 that love is an evidence that we have actually changed, and we've gone from death to to life. It's proof that something has happened to us. Something has changed. There is a life inside of you that is causing you to love more than just your friends, more than just people that you have things in common with. There's something that has changed inside that has made you love people who are not like you or people that you don't like. It's a supernatural love. Jesus says anybody can love their friends. We talked about that this summer in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 46. But loving each other is somehow proof that we've moved from death, the death kingdom to the life kingdom. Teenagers are so excited to get their driver's license, parents not so much. But I remember when I got mine, it was a big deal, even though I didn't have a car. My older sister was the only one that owned a car besides my parents. So us five boys always drove her car. She was very, very kind. Very, and some of you know my sister, Christine. She was amazing. Once you passed your test, you know, you waited for your real license to show up in the mail. I don't know, maybe today, don't they print it right there? They might. I don't remember. Uh, my youngest, it took him four times to pass his test. It's because he never studied. Uh, but uh, you get your license. And you're so excited because somehow you, you, you're, now, you're now an adult. 
which isn't entirely true, but you somehow feel that way, and it's, it's proof of your age, it's proof that you have permission to drive, and you can flash that card. Here's the proof that I can drive. You may also need it to flash it in situations when you shouldn't be driving, and those are the times you, know, you don't want to be flashing your, your license, but even then, it's proof that you passed. You passed your test. The depth of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is proof that we've passed the test, from, we've gone from death to life. That eternal life resides in us. That his spirit which he's given has, resides in us. Our love for each other is a demonstration of salvation. You know why I think that's crazy? Because, because I compartmentalize. I have my relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ over here and my relationship with God here. And somewhere in the middle is my understanding of the Christian walk. But John is telling us you can't compartmentalize those things. Your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ is tied to your salvation. It's proof that you've been saved. That's a huge statement. You might think they're different things theologically. Where my salvation is where I became right with God and, and my interactions with other Christians is just you know, kind of working out my Christian faith. But he says, no, they are glued, they are liquid nailed together. Your salvation and your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, your love for them is evidence that you're right with God. Are you with me? Your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is evidence that you are right with God. And really, isn't that the same thing as Jesus' response back in the Gospels to his uh, accusers and his persecutors when they were trying to trap him? With all the laws in the Old Testament, they said, what is the greatest commandment? They asked Jesus. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. I mean, he just right away glued these two together, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So even Jesus said, this is the most important thing, the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. Our love for each other is proof that we're right with God. Secondly, we, we learn in this verse, uh, 1 John 3.16, the love for each other is sacrificial. Like, what is this love like? It's sacrificial like Jesus' love for us. It's not just a warm feeling. It's just not like, oh, I'm so, I feel so comfortable in this group because I know everybody or I, I know we all love God. It goes beyond that comfortable feeling. We love because he first loved us, chapter 4, verse 19. And we're told here, if we have a hard time loving, then we've done some major forgetting. Because we love, we love because he first loved us. If we have a hard time loving, we've forgotten how much God's loved us. Because when we know how much God's loved us, we go and love each other. Jesus laid down his life for us Chapter 3, verse 16. That is the only reason we need to love one another. No matter what the circumstances is. 
No matter if we disagree, no matter if we don't know each other, the only reason we need to love each other is that Jesus laid down his life. And so we should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, this was simple for John to state because John couldn't forget. John was there. He traveled with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He was nearby during his trial and his execution. He watched him, literally watched him lay down onto the cross. He laid down his life. He watched him breathe his last, all out of love for him. All out of love for John's readers. All out of love for us and for you individually. He laid down his life. How could we not love one another? See, when you know that, when you feel it for real, and it's not just a story, and it's not just an intellectual agreement, but you really know it, to ignore a brother or sister in Christ is just not an option. To fight with a brother or sister in Christ is not an option. Jesus laid down his life, so I lay down my life for my brothers and sisters. To refuse to forgive a brother or sister in Christ, it's not an option. Jesus laid down his life for me. I need to lay down my life for you. The only option is love. Now, how do I do that? John doesn't leave us hanging. Verses 17 to 20 in that chapter. And also in chapter 4. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. With actions and in truth. I mean, this passage preaches itself, right? I mean, I don't have to add much to it. It's just a challenge. There's no explaining to do here. Just realize that John needed to say it because there were people in the churches he was writing to, intellectuals, um, who were thinking as long as their theology is right, they're taken care of, everything's good. And John's like, no. Good theology, really good theology, is also practical theology. You do something with what you believe. And John goes so far as to ask the people that he was writing to, how can the love of God be in a person who's not taking care of the material needs of a fellow brother or sister in Christ? That question should make all of us sit up, recalibrate. Because love is practical, and it's also truthful. When was the last time that you gave materially to those who are in material need in the body of Christ. I know we tithe. I tithe. You tithe. But beyond that, simple question. When was the last time you gave materially to somebody in the body of Christ that had a material need? Maybe it's somebody over in Afghanistan, a believer over there. It's a simple question, and I hope you can answer it quickly. <laughs> because that 
is love. We love by, by giving, but we also love by acting truthfully. He said to love in action and in truth. It just means with integrity, not expecting anything in return. Not expecting and, and, and hoping that it may earn us favor with that person or, or earn us favor with God. To give and to act in truth means to just give with integrity. We give, period. That's what love does. And John is saying that that is the mark of the believer. And he's just repeating what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. This kind of love transcends cultures. You can love someone of a completely different culture, someone around the world. You can love uh, in the midst of chaos. Things don't have to be copacetic in order to love like this. They could be chaotic. This kind of love transcends politics. It certainly transcends pandemics. This is a supernatural, Jesus-like, sacrificial, practical love that provides the evidence for the truth that we stand for. You know, I said earlier, it's an evangelistic kind of love that he gave us. By this, all men will know that you, have, uh, that, that you are my disciples. They will, they'll know by the love that you have. It's evangelistic. Here's what I mean uh, in, in light of the truth. I can stand for truth in two ways. I can stand for truth in an unloving way. And in the end, that truth really won't matter because I'm driving people away because I'm not being loving. The truth can be true, but it's not going to matter because I'm not being loving. Or I could stand for truth in a loving way and draw people towards the truth because of the loving manner I maintain when we're talking about the truth. Truth is truth, but it's the depth of our love that will determine if you drive people away or if you draw them toward the truth by the Spirit's graces. It comes down to love. It's an evangelistic love that John is speaking about. It's an evangelistic love also because the, our world is looking for an answer. Our world is looking and seeking for an answer, and they seek in all different places. They seek it in movements, in politics, in education, in money, in love, and in sex. And they, they're searching all over the place. Nothing's new under the sun, Solomon said. People have been searching in all the wrong places for the longest time. But we know that it's only a supernatural love that is the answer. It's the supernatural love that brings fulfillment, that brings us uh, confidence, that brings us hope that brings us a future. It's this supernatural love. And if you know Christ, you have it. You have it. So in John's simple letter here, we have to ask this question of ourselves. What proof will I provide this week of who God is? It'll be through love. John says it's through love. What sacrifice will I make this week? Because we're told this is what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for others. 
What sacrifice will you make? It may not be one that you can plan this afternoon, like I'm going to sacrifice for this person. Maybe it is for this person this week. It may be an opportunity that the Holy Spirit just brings right up in front of your face. Now you got a decision. Am I going to put aside my time, my money, my schedule, and sacrifice for this person? Because that's what love is. And finally, what needs will you meet this week? To make it known that the Father has lavished love on you. And he's called you his child. And you can't help but let it spill over because he's loved you so much. What needs will you meet? We said that John cycles through his points. Um, it can be sort of frustrating to a Western mind when you, when, when you read his letter. It really does sound more like a letter than it does like a treatise, like the book of Romans. But in chapter 4, verse 21, boy, he says it again. And I just want to leave you with this. He, Jesus, has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. That is the mark of every believer. Let's pray. We praise you, first of all, Father, for the lavish love you have given us. And, and the, the moment that that flows off my tongue, Father, I, I know that I don't understand it all. That I have so much more to know and experience of your love. So teach us and show us. Lavish your love on us. We ask this not because we're great people. We ask this not because even... Even we need it, we ask it because we know it is your desire to lavish your love on us. But we do need it. And Lord, when you do, would you please open our hearts, crack open our hearts, fill it, but overflow it so that we can show the world who you are. No one has ever seen God, but we are to love so they can see what you do and so that they would meet you as well. So even in this time of transition at our, in our church or in our own personal lives where we're wondering, God, where are you in this mess? Lord, teach us to love one another as evidence that you are real and show us practical ways that we can do it with our hands, with our money, with our time. Make your supernatural love real and practical in our days and in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.